Hopefully you received the bulletin on the way in. Just a couple of announcements before we get into God's Word. If you're a visitor with us, we want to welcome you here. There's a visitor information card in, the, in your bulletin. We'd love to have a record of you being here. Please fill that out. Drop it in the offering on the last song. Um, if you are new here, just visiting with us. When the offering comes, just drop that card in. Um, if you're a family, uh, part of the family here, that's a different story. But other than that, if you're visiting with us, we do not expect anything from you. We're, here, we're glad you're here, and we'd love to see you come back. But drop that in there, and that'd be great. We'll get information to you, ways to get connected. We mentioned, please visit our website. You could join community groups, look at the sermons online, uh, get the, our newsletter, get connected in serving, email, all kinds of stuff on our website. So please go there. Um, I think Mike, Mike, you're going to be in the back? Okay. One of the deacons will be in the back of the information desk. If you have any information, you can go see Mike. Uh, he'll be more than happy to help you. Also, uh, women's prayer breakfast is coming up Saturday. Whoop, that went fast. February 22nd, 9 o'clock. Um, there's a sign-up through the doors on the left-hand side. Um, you could uh, sign up there. You could sign up on the table. Again, Michael will be back there. Although he's not a woman, he will help you because his wife is, okay? So you could see uh, him back there. Also, which mark that on your date. Come on out. Great time of fellowship. Um, no youth group this Wednesday. Um, Winter break, as you could tell when you look outside, um, although spring is coming, so they say. So there'll be no youth groups this Wednesday. And then finally, we are in our sermon series, Acts, which I wanted to get to because we have a lot to cover. So any questions, just go in the back, see Mike, go to our website, get all the information that uh, is there for you, and uh, we're glad you're here with us. My name is Lou, I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in the Acts chapter 10, if you turn there. Now... Before I dismiss the kids, we'll have some time of prayer, but I want to let you know that we're covering a lot of verses today, so I'm going to be doing my usual flyby. Um, you can pick up a CD, go online to podcast, download the sermon, or watch video as well, and uh, to, to maybe miss, if you miss some of the things that uh, we cover today. Um, there's Bibles in the back. I will not be able to put every verse up on the screen. Um, if you don't have a Bible, it's our gift to you. As I dismiss the kids, you can go out with the kids, grab a Bible, and come on back down right by the sound booth. And uh, so you can follow along with us. We're in the book of Acts. It's in the New Testament. And uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. So that's where we're at, Acts chapter 10. We go through books of the Bible here. We're getting ready to do a series come this spring on, on the atonement. Very excited about that. Um, on what the cross really means if you have friends, neighbors, family, or whatever that is interested at all in Christianity, we're going to deal with the heart of the gospel. We're going to deal with the heart of Christianity, and that is the atonement, the work of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus on the cross, atoning for our sins. So that's going to be a series, a five-part series starting March, I think the 16th is the first day. So invite them out, and uh, we'll cover a lot of ground. It'll be a five-part series. All right, so that's kind of the announcements. But we're in Acts right now. We're walking through the book. We're in chapter 10. Let's pray together again. Father, thank you for your word uh, this morning. Um, we're thankful that you have given us your revelation to us, that you have told us who you are and who we are, and that we're not left to our own imaginations or speculation, but you have revealed to us in revelation your word to us. Father, thank you for that. Otherwise, we'd be left to... Uh, wonder and, and, and ponder false things about who you truly are. So thank you for your word. Father, as we open up to uh, Acts 10, as we read your word, as we look to your word, Father, we pray that uh, your spirit would do work in us, 
And that, Father God, that you would have your way with us and that um, your grace and mercy would, would flow to us. And I uh, just thank you for everyone that's here today. We look forward to what you're going to do, Holy Spirit. You are uh, welcome in this place, and we ask that you would guide and lead us so that we would see Jesus for who he really is and understand the gospel with greater depth today. In Jesus' name we pray, and the kids are dismissed. Acts chapter 10. Grab a Bible if you need one. We're studying the longest narrative in the book of Acts, chapter 10, all of chapter 10, and then into chapter 11, verse 18. As we know, the book of Acts opens up where the gospel of Luke, the gospel according to Luke, ended. Jesus Christ had been crucified on a Roman cross, three days later rose from the grave, conquering death, defeating sin, forgiving sinners, and then he, after his resurrection, he gathers his disciples together for a 40-day training period where he meets with them, he eats with them, and instructs them, and then he commands them to stay in Jerusalem until he sends the Holy Spirit who will indwell them and empower them to be his witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, then moving out to Judea and Samaria, and then to the rest of the world. Paul S. Reese writes, The gospel is neither a discussion or a debate, it's an announcement. I love that. It's neither a, the gospel is neither a discussion or a debate. It is an announcement. Jesus Christ has come. He was crucified. He went into the grave. He rose from the dead. And that announcement has been made as we've been reading the, the book of Acts. And thousands of people have come to faith. And as that happened, there has been persecution. Remember, Stephen, the deacon, the evangelist, was, was murdered. And major persecution uh, entered the church. And they spread from Jerusalem through Judea and into Samaria. And now in chapter 10... The gospel now is being declared to the Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jewish folks. And God, in his wisdom, in his infinite wisdom, uh, thought it wise to use the apostle Peter as his emissary, who was the first one to really see how the gospel now will come to the Gentiles, that they too can be saved. Now we know from the Old Testament that God loves everyone. And there are plenty of people that were not Jewish who were believers in Israel's God, God of creation, the one true and living God. But up to this point, the way in which people came to to know him was through Judaism, to become part of the Jewish people. But now, through Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, that dividing wall of Judaism and Gentiles has been removed. This is what Paul writes to the Ephesians. He says, therefore, remember to the Ephesians, to the Gentile church, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that's non-Christian, non-Jewish people, that remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision by what is called a circumcision, Jews and the non-Jews, which was made by the flesh of hand, by hands. Remember that you were at that time, Gentiles, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant's promises having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, in the gospel, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's exactly what's happening. That's Ephesians. That is exactly what's happening in Acts chapter 10. If you remember last week, we said that Peter was on the rooftop. He was praying. And then Peter went into a trance around noon. Chapter 10, verse 11. Peter saw the heavens open while he was in this trance. And something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. This is chapter 10, verse 11. 
In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Chapter 10, verse 14. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Do not call defiled. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up once into heaven. Taken up at once into heaven. Remember we said last week that God was showing Peter that the Gentiles did not have to come the way of Judaism to know him. The gospel was going to be preached to all people. Every nation, every tongue, every tribe. And anyone, no matter what cultural background, who repents and puts their sins and their Faith in the Israel's Messiah can be saved. Peter was told to stop calling that which is unclean, the Gentiles, stop calling them unclean what God has made clean. In other words, the laws that were given to Israel that had to do with cleanliness and uncleanliness, what, what is common and not common, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This lesson may seem easy for you and for me, 2014 in Albany, New York, but in that day, in that culture, it was very, very hard for the Jewish people to understand that. John Stott, a uh, Bible scholar, great Bible scholar, said it well when he said, It is difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf which yawned in those days between the Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles on the other. Not that the Old Testament continents such a divide, it affirmed that God had a purpose for the Gentiles by choosing and blessing the Jews, he intended to bless all the families of the earth, Genesis 12. He says the tragedy was that Israel twisted this doctrine of election into one of favoritism, became filled with racial pride and hatred, despised the Gentiles as dogs, and developed traditions that kept them apart. No Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile. All familiar intercourse or contact with Gentiles was forbidden. That's that day. And now Peter sees this vision. Everything's going to change. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at chapter 10, 17 through chapter 11, verse 18, in five movements. I'm not going to, again, I'm not putting all the verses up. We have too much. But there's five events or five narratives or, or, or smaller narratives within a larger narrative frame. And they go like this, if you're taking notes. Can I get the, uh, okay, good. Okay, so again, broken up in points. I'll have the verses up on the screen for us, but we'll look at the convoy that was sent from Cornelius. Cornelius, which we'll talk about, sends people to get Peter. Then the clarification, because there needed to be some sort of clarification for what was going on. You'll see that. Then the conversion, or the conversation with Cornelius, the conversion of Cornelius, and finally the criticism. Okay, of Cornelius. So that's our, that's our kind of our outline for today. Okay, that's where we're going. The convoy, the clarification, the conversation, and the conversion, and finally the criticism. We'll go by this, uh, some of them pretty quickly. So we're not here all day, all right? So here, let me bring you up to speed. If you remember, in the end of chapter 9, Peter, the, the, the very Jewish apostle, left Jerusalem, was en route toward the northwest, toward the Mediterranean Sea. First he stops at Lydda and heals a man who was paralyzed. Then he moved further toward the Mediterranean Sea, further northwest from Jerusalem to a place called Joppa. Joppa, if you remember, was the place that Jonah had run to, who was running from God and went on to a ship and, and headed out to Tarshish. So Peter was summoned from Lydda to Joppa because there was a woman named Tabitha who was um, 
dead. She was a woman who had a full, you know, was, uh, uh, had good works, acts of charity, but she had died. And the, the disciples there heard, they're in Joppa, they heard that Peter was in Lydda, uh, I think it's about 20 miles or so. And they're like, you know what, let's, let's call on Peter. Let's see if Peter can help us with this faithful woman who had passed away. So Peter... They come to get Peter. They find him in Lydda. They bring him to Joppa, if you remember the story. And Peter kneels and prays over her, and she comes back to life. Okay? That, that, that's the, what brings Peter to Joppa. Then when we turn to chapter 10, the narrative changes from Peter and Joppa to Peter and Cornelius. If you remember last week, Cornelius was an Italian uh, centurion living in Caesarea. It's about 30 miles north of, on the coast, on the Mediterranean coast of Joppa. About 30 miles there. And in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 10, track with me, we read that at Caesarea, this 30 miles north of Joppa, there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion. And this Italian co- uh, cohort, this uh, centurion, has this vision and sees this angel. And the angel tells him, listen, send some men, go to Joppa, find the man named Peter. Verses 1 through 8. Meanwhile, while they're on their way to get Peter, who's in Joppa, Peter's up on that roof having that vision that we talked about, where God says, lowers this, this curtain, this, 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 you know, expanding the whole earth, and says, sees these animals and says, you know, rise, kill, and eat what God has made clean, do not call common. So he's up on this rooftop in Joppa, in Caesarea, Italian cohort, Italian centurion, sends messengers to Joppa to go get Peter. And that's where we pick up our story. Chapter 10, verse 17. So while Peter was inwardly perplexed, he's up on the rooftop, he sees his vision. While he was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision was that he had seen, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask Simon, who was called Peter, if he was lodging there. Verse 19. And while Peter was pondering the vision, The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down, accompany them. Without hesitation, I've sent them. Verse 22. Verse 21. So Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. Verse 23. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So they came down from Caesarea, they meet him, and then they go back. Now, Peter is very perplexed by this vision, and I can't blame him. Since he was this big, he's been taught all the ceremonial laws, what is clean and unclean. And I think it's fair to say that Peter is dealing with and fighting strong traditions of prejudice. God was now saying that Gentiles no longer needed to come through Judaism, they were no longer separated, they were no longer unclean. And as he's contemplating this, God is setting it up in his sovereignty by sending these men to come and and knock on the door and right on cue, the Spirit says to Peter, I sent them, that's me, go. So Peter goes down. And Peter tells them, you know, who are you? What's going on? I mean, Peter, Peter didn't know exactly at this point what was going on in the narrative, right? He doesn't know really. He knows that God tells him, he saw the vision, go see these guys. I sent them, but he asked them, you know, what's going on? And when the men tell him what's going on, notice in the text what it says. He says that Cornelius said to go get you, 
verse 22, don't miss this, to hear, to hear what you have to say. So the angel came to Cornelius and said, go get Peter and listen to him. See what this man has to say to you. We said last week, and I think it's important to repeat this, that even though Cornelius was a military man, he was a devout man, the Bible calls him a praying man, a generous man, a devout man, he still needed to hear and respond to the gospel. You see, we are one body, the church. We are collectively the body of Christ. But we come into the body one repentive soul at a time. God is working on the heart of Cornelius for sure. Cornelius responded to the angel in obedience by sending this convoy to go get Peter. But God is also working on the heart of Peter because he, he tells them that, that Peter uh, uh, invited them in. Remember we said that last week in chapter 10, verse 23. That inviting the Gentiles to stay with Peter in, in a Jewish home was changing Peter's heart. And that simple phrase, inviting them in, is really a big deal. The whole business of prejudice because of race and culture and background or even past sins is contrary to the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Even the apostle Peter had to learn that lesson. It was slow, but Peter was learning the valuable lesson that what God has declared clean, do not call unclean. Now, we said last week that we were dealing with our own prejudices. We categorize certain people groups, right? We, we categorize and, and we, we put them in an unclean category. Or we write them off because of certain behaviors that they're not worthy to hear the gospel or habits or lifestyles and, and they're unclean and, and we separate ourselves from them. And that's, that's not what God would want us to do. Now, I'm not saying, when Peter's not saying that sin that is unclean, now becomes clean. That's not what he's saying. The, the context is the gospel. The context is the gospel. The spreading of the gospel to all people groups, no matter what culture, no matter what race, no matter what background, no matter what habits they're in, the gospel is open to all people to come to Jesus. Now, maybe, there's, maybe in your own mind, maybe you walked away last week thinking, there are certain people groups Certain people doing certain habits and certain sins that I kind of wrote off. I hope you thought about that this week. Could we, the church, possibly have certain people groups within our own fellowship? Certain people living certain kinds of past in the background, we kind of write off. We kind of put them in a, in a separate kind of unclean group. Could it be? that certain people have committed certain sins, had certain failures in their lives, or made bad decisions? As I wrote that, I was thinking of the stigma of divorce and how sometimes we blackball people and we treat them as unclean. Even though they become Christians and are forgiven, others treat them strangely because of their background, but that is doing exactly what Peter did. Let me, let me bring this home a little bit closer. Have you ever met anybody who has done such terrible things that they say, I know God will forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. I know what I did was wrong and I feel ashamed, I feel unclean, and I know God will, will forgive me, but I, I just can't get over it. I just can't 
get over the fact of what I've done. I know he will, but I can't accept myself. What are they doing? They're saying, what God has cleansed, I'm going to call unclean. You call God a liar. You're calling unclean what God has said clean. First John says, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To say, oh, I can't, is calling God a liar. Is calling that which God has cleansed unclean and God is greater, you're greater than God. So Peter goes off to Caesarea. He's learning the lesson. And then there's a conversation that takes place, verse 24. And on the following day, they enter Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them. He called his relatives and his close friends together. Then Peter entered and Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and what? Worshipped him. Misplaced honor. But Peter lifted up his uh, saying, stand up, I too am a man. As he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of other nations. Like, he knew the law. He knew the tradition. He said, but God has shown me that I should not call any persons common or unclean. Peter's starting to get it. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked him, why have you sent me? Verse 30, and Cornelius said, and he tells the whole story. I don't want to read it again. So here he is in front of this crowd, right? I mean, the house is packed. He's got relatives. He's got his mom, his, his kids, the military associations, his servants. They're all there. And this first ever cultural, you know, cross-cultural Bible study is getting ready to start, right? And, 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 and here he enters his house, and what happens? Cornelius, with misplaced honor, falls at his feet. And I want to pick up that for for a second. I want to read to you Matthew 23. Listen to what Jesus said. It's a principle, I think, throughout Scripture. The greatest among you shall be a servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Peter, the same man who had Cornelius fall at his feet and tells him, get up, writes in his letter, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, This military leader who had money, influence, strength, falls at Peter, the fisherman's feet. If there ever was a perfect opportunity for Peter, if there ever was a perfect opportunity for Peter to exalt himself and to put on his old old prejudice habit, it's right here, right now. But that's not what he does. He doesn't say, hey, the fisherman's here. Kiss the ring. I'm here to save the day. That's not what Peter did. God's changing his heart. Peter says, stand up, man. Dude, I'm just a man like you. I'm just a man like you. Peter, Peter deflects the praise, and he goes to ministers to others. Now, have you ever, maybe I'm the only one, hopefully I'm not, have you ever wondered how to handle praise? How to acknowledge? It's, it's kind of awkward, isn't it? When people kind of just, cheer you on. It's awkward to me. You know, Proverbs 27, 21 says, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. But a man is tested by his praise. How hard is it to receive praise and remain humble? It's bad enough to be on the bottom when things go really bad, but sometimes being on top when things are going really good, it's just as hard. Many people have been crushed by accolades of others. Now, the Bible says to encourage one another. 
There's no doubt. And we need to encourage one another. But the test, God tests us sometimes with the praise. Like, like the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, praise can act like a, a refining fire. How will you handle praise? How will you handle accolades? How will you handle that encouragement? It means a lot. It says a lot about you. Dr. Pritchard writes, there's four unseen dangers about praise. Now, I thought these were really good. I want to share them with you. It says, number one, it may cause us to believe we are better than we really are. I reminded of Paul's words in, in Rome. He says, for by grace given to me, I say, think, don't think more highly of yourself as you ought to. But think with sober judgment, each according to the, the measure of faith that God has given you. Think soberly. Number two, he says, it may lead us to think we deserve what we have. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We can't forget that. Number three, it blinds us on our weaknesses. Sometimes when we get over accolade and, and receiving the praise, if that's what we're living for, we don't see our weaknesses very well. We only see the good, and we don't see the struggles. And the fourth thing was, it may lead to a place where we no longer think we need, to, we need the Lord. I think of, Nebuch- of King Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember the story. He's over in his rooftop, and he looks at the kingdom that he has built. God gave him that. And then God takes him and sends him out, if you know the story, into the, into the, into the open grassy field to eat grass. And his hair grew, the Bible says, like eagle's feathers and nails like bird's claws. Praise can wind up. Praise may cause us to end up in the crucible, a fiery furnace where our motives are severely tested and, 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 and it shows us what we are made of. Many times we regard our weaknesses, but we forget that our hearts, right? We're so, we're so in tune with our strengths, excuse me, our strengths, that our hearts forget to see some of our weaknesses. Any recovering addict knows this. You're in recovery. You start making some good choices. You put together some time of sobriety. Things are going well. You're making some good choices. And things, when it's, things like that is when time comes and then temptation comes. Scripture says, let anyone thinks he can stand, take heed lest he falls. It's time we say, you know what? I'm doing so good. Everyone's telling me how wonderful I am that there's danger ahead. So what shall I do? How does Peter handle it too? First of all, I don't think Peter built his life around the praise of others. Remember, encouraging one another is good for the soul. It's something we're commanded to do. But ultimately, your identity and your ultimate acceptance is before your creator God and the gospel. That's ultimate. Number two, don't believe everything people say about you. Not the good or the bad, right? (laughs) Someone once said, don't believe your press. It's written by a biased reporter. I wonder if Cornelius knew about Peter when Jesus told him, you know what, get behind me, Satan. Or when Peter said, I don't know him. Really? You don't know him? Third time, I don't know him? I don't know him? I don't know him. I don't think he knew all that. Finally, when someone compliments you and praises you for a job well done, smile, say thank you. Give glory to God. Don't let it go to your head. Charles Stanley, Dr. Charles Stanley from the First Baptist Church of Atlanta, he says this. He says, my advice is simply this. Say thank you very much. Then whisper a prayer in your heart to the Lord, thanking him for the blessings recognizing that anything worthy of praise ultimately comes from God. If achievement, excuse me, if you felt encouraged, let the person know how blessed you were. If you received praise for an achievement that was a group effort, be sure to redirect the compliment to all those who were involved. A blessing is always more enjoyable when it is shared, he writes. Every compliment that bounces into your ear should quickly rebound to the glory of God. If we hold on to it, 
The position of pride will begin to infect our hearts, but if we pass the praise to God, humility takes up residence in our souls, end quote. Great advice. Don't minimize what God has called you to do and the gifts and the talents he's given you. Just make sure you give him all the glory and praise. That's what Peter does. Peter is called by God, sent by God, empowered by God, and he's ready to give glory to God. Cornelius says, okay, Peter, I'll get up off the floor. You told me to get up. You're just a man like me. The floor is yours, verse 33. When all in the presence of God to hear what you have to say, what has God commanded you to do? What has God called you to do? Peter opens his mouth, and you see the clarification. Now, there are seven things. I'm going to go through them quickly that he mentions in the gospel. Share them in your community groups this week. I'll make sure I put on a discussion guide. But he wants to clarify the gospel to Cornelius, and this is important stuff. So we're just going to spend a couple of minutes here, okay? Number one, if you look at your Bibles in chapter 10, verse 34, he says, Peter opens his mouth, bringing clarification what's going on. He says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, every, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now the Greek word that he writes for partiality is, comes from a Hebrew idiom, and it means to lift the face. So in other words, what Peter's saying is, I've come to realize that God doesn't look up to some and down on others. There's no discrimination there. God sees everyone the same. Everyone has the same potential and access to God through the gospel. So we, we get that. That's what Peter's been learning. But what he says here in the second part has been is somewhat confusing. Verse 35. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. We have been seeing that Cornelius was a man who feared God, who did good deeds. But what he is not saying, Peter is not saying, is that now is acceptable as far as salvation before our God. As I pointed out last week, you can be religious, you can be devout, you can be sincere, you can be uh, prayerful and even generous, but not have your sins forgiven. The whole narrative story, which we will end later on this morning, will be, is, is been given to us in Scripture to say that Cornelius was all these things, but he needed Jesus. He needed the gospel. He needed salvation. He needed to be forgiven of his sins. In verse 34, where it talks about the acceptableness, acceptableness of Cornelius, it's not his earned righteousness. The Bible says no works of man will ever be justified in God's sight. But what Peter is pointing out is that he's honest with himself and he's honest with God, which leads God, which we will see, to reveal more of himself. Simply means that God recognizes that he has an honest heart, he's, he's responsive, he's got a correct attitude. Cornelius, I would say, is simply living up to the light that God has given him. And here's the principle. Many Christians prejudge, and we don't know what God is doing. Yes, Cornelius was not a Christian at the moment, but God was working on his heart. I mentioned this back in January. We need to be praying for our family and friends. If you're here today, if you're here this morning, and you're seeking God, it's because God's already seeking you. God was coming after Cornelius, and God is coming after you. The Bible says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws me. That's why you're here. But Cornelius needed more. He needed the life of Christ. Yes, he was a good man, but he needed Jesus. You know, the gospel works differently for some people. 
as I mentioned this before with Saul, Saul was knocked off his horse and converted on the spot. He had a dramatic transformation. Cornelius, God placed it in his heart to seek him. And it took a period of time. And some of you have been coming, you've been hearing the gospel, you've been hearing about Jesus, and God is slowly drawing you to himself. He shows no partiality. Second thing he says is in verse 36. For the world that he has sent to Israel, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. So he is not only shows no partiality, but he, he sent the word to be preached, the good news, the peace, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. You yourselves know, verse 37, what happened throughout all Judea, beginning with Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And what's interesting is that Peter is preaching to a Gentile audience, but he's bringing Jewish themes in. He understood that Cornelius was seeking the God of Israel, the one true and living God. And he says there's, this word's been sent to the sons of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ. Now, we could try to get peace in many different ways. People try all kinds of approaches to appease God, to approach God, to have peace with God, but they fall short. Only God initiates the way of the peace. And the peace, he says, is through his son who bore our sins on the cross, and he is Lord of all. Not just the Jew, not just the Gentile, not black, white, not Asian, not wherever you come from. Jesus Christ is Lord of all people. That's a declaration of all people. Third, verse 38, that Jesus went about doing good and healing who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He was witnesses. We're witnesses all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. The idea of doing good is, 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 is a powerful uh, Greek word. It talks about uh, um, someone who does good, does good for, the, for society, for, for a lot of people. It's, it's, it's a term that was used for like heroes, like Hercules. And Jesus here is seeing as this, this hero coming in and healing and serving and, and ministering and, and people are benefiting from it. He destroys the work of the devil. King Jesus preaches the kingdom of God has come and people are being healed. Demons are being, uh, you know, sent running. Jesus is giving them a glimpse of what the kingdom will be like when this world is transformed and we have a new heavens and a new earth. Everywhere he went, he set people free in this jacked up, broken world and he proclaimed hope to the hopeless. Fourth, he put, I love this, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Jesus died on the cross he says, was a means by which he made peace with himself who is holy and we who are sinners. Notice that Peter doesn't say cross, he says tree. Because he's talking about the curse in Deuteronomy 21 that, where it says that everyone who punishes by a crime, or, or excuse me, if a man has been committed a crime and punishable by death, he's put to death and he's hung on a tree. Cursed is every man who's hung on a tree. The Bible says in the New Testament, Jesus Christ became that curse for us. He bore our sins on that wooden tree. Bore that curse so that we can become his. He paid the debt we deserve. God took our sin and laid it on Jesus. He was the sacrificial lamb. The Bible says, for our sake, he, that's God the Father, made him Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we may become the righteousness of God in him. Because he is God, his death has infinite value. Because he is man, he can atone for sins. That's why he's the God-man. Fifth, verse 40, God raised him on the third day, 
Made him appear not to all people, but to those he has chosen as God's witnesses. We ate and we drank with him after he rose from the dead. The Bible says he appeared to 500 people, but he ministered closely with his disciples and the apostles. Peter says, I was one of those. I saw him after he rose from the dead. It wasn't hallucination. He's not a ghost like Casper. He has a body, right? Hallucination, when you hallucinate, they don't pass the salt or give you the ketchup, right? I ate with him. We ministered together. I was there with him. We drank and we ate together. Jesus was alive, again, seen by hundreds of people. When Paul wrote that Jesus rose from the grave and saw 500 people, there were a lot of people that were still alive in that day. You don't make that comment. You don't make that statement unless it's true because there's 500 people that could say it's not true. Not one of them did. They were all alive when Paul wrote that statement. Jesus has risen from the grave on the third day and it substantiates his resurrection by making him visible to witnesses, chosen witnesses. That's a, it means it's in the perfect tense and what it's highlighting is God had chosen him before and now is established in the future that Peter would be a witness. In other words, Peter comes to the house of Cornelius, the Italian centurion, with the understanding that God is powerful enough to rise Jesus from the grave, conquering sin, and sovereign enough to appoint a day when a very Jewish fisherman is going to share the good news of Jesus to a very Italian centurion. Six point, verse 42. And he commands us to preach to all the people, to testify that the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead, the Lord who is Lord of all, has been appointed and decreed to judge those living of the dead, all people. He is the ultimate cosmic judge. In fact, when the Bible talks about the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite term for himself, he points to Daniel 7 that this Son of Man, this, this, this God himself will judge the living and the dead, that he will come back again. And finally, in the fifth, uh, seventh point, which I think nails it, to him, all the prophets. To Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You know, it was Carl Menninger, the famous psychiatrist, who once said that if he could convince the patients in these psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them could walk out the next day. The need that Cornelius had and his family and his relatives was the need for forgiveness. You know, the greatest need you have and I have is forgiveness. Why is it in Jesus' name? Because he's the one who bore the curse. He's the one who paid the penalty for our sins. If there's one principle that we would do well remembering is forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is costly. Even human forgiveness is costly. Have a child rebel and tell me you don't pay the cost at night weeping and crying and praying with a broken heart. Even property, even when it comes to concerns, things of property, there's a debt to be paid. If you take a key and you run along the side of my car, and don't do that, but if you did, I can forgive you. I can absorb the debt and get it fixed. Debt for sin is innate in our world. And divine forgiveness is costly as well. I, I talk to people all the time. Well, why, does, why, why do we need forgiveness? That's the way we were made. It's, it's innate in us. There's debt when there's sin. Talk to the judge in Albany. 
God is love, but God is holy. He's perfect and without sin. God will not and cannot violate his own nature and break the moral laws within the universe. Sin has a debt. Sin must have its punishment. And God alone can pay the terrible price that is necessary for men to be forgiven. Forgiveness is never a case of just saying, there's always a debt. Even in our own life, how much more for an eternal God who created us in his image and likeness and value and we rebelled against him and sin against each other, his own creation. Oswald Chambers wrote this. He says, we trample the blood of the Son of God if we think we are forgiven because we are sorry for our sins. The only explanation for the forgiveness of God and for the unfathomable depth of his forgetting is the death of Jesus Christ. Our repentance is merely the outcome of our personal realization of his atonement, which he has worked out for us. It does not matter who or what we are, there is absolute reinstatement into God by the death of Jesus Christ and by no other way. Not because Jesus Christ pleads, but because he died. It is not earned, but accepted. All the pleading which deliberately refuses to recognize the cross is of no avail. It is, a batter, it is battering at a door other than the one that Jesus has opened. Our Lord does not pretend we are all right when we are wrong. The atonement is a propitiation, the, the, the avenging of God's wrath, whereby God, through the death of Jesus, makes an unholy man holy, makes him unclean, and makes him clean, end quote. Peter tells the crowd, everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sins in his name, in his work, in his personhood, to believe in Jesus. I'm no longer relying on anything of myself to commend me before God. I'm trusting alone in Jesus who died on the cross and my hope of forgiveness, my hope of eternal life is solely in him and by grace alone. And while the message is being preached, man, the Holy Spirit interrupts. And you see this conversion take place in verse 44. Peter was saying these things. He was sharing the gospel. God's you know, not partial, wants everyone to come. Jesus died, Jesus rose. He's Lord of all. He'll return again to judge. Turn to him and have forgiveness of sins. And bam, the Holy Spirit is given. Peter's saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, that's the Jews, were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling and praising God. And Peter said, wow, verse 47, I added that, but that's what he said. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing them? They received the Holy Spirit as we have. And he commanded them, he commanded them to be baptized in Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay for a couple of days. So we see this audio, this, this visual, this objective demonstration of the Holy Spirit coming down. And Peter and his Jewish Christians are, are just blown away. Astounded that this gift of the Holy Spirit had come and rested on this crowd of Gentiles. This incident, if you read it in, in commentaries and different people wrote about this incident, it, many times it's called the Gentile Pentecost. If you weren't here, we looked at that in Acts chapter 2 of the, of the first day of Pentecost when God sent his Holy Spirit and, and the church gave birth, Acts chapter 2. And people say, well, you know what? This is the Gentile Pentecost. Just like the day of the Pentecost in chapter 2, there's signs and wonders, there's the coming of the Spirit, there's there languages, there's the gift of tongues, and God was showing Peter when this happened, was showing him clearly that the two events, the day of Pentecost and this day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the spirits were connected. There's unity. 
this continuum in the two events. It happened on the day of Pentecost when the Jews were baptized and now the Gentiles received the same gift by the preaching of the gospel of many Pentecost, just like Samaria in chapter 8. And Peter got the point. He said, man, listen, let's baptize them. Get some water. The Spirit came. They've been, they've, they've been born again, born anew. The, the Holy Spirit indwells them. Let's baptize them. That's the regular order of things. You come to faith and you get baptized. We're having a baptism here in April. For those of you who are, are, are followers of Jesus Christ. Faith, then baptism. And they're baptized in water. And they say, Peter, can you stay and hang for a little while? But I would be the same way. Just, just, just teach us some more stuff, Peter, right? But then, of course, Peter. You know, they say good news travels fast. But bad news travels faster. Criticism. Chapter 11. Now the apostles and brothers who throughout Judea heard. The Gentiles received the word of God. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised party criticized him. You went to uncircumcised men. You went to the Gentiles and you ate with them. But Peter began and explained everything. And I'm not going to read the verses, but he explains the whole story again and what had taken place. This so-called circumcised party that has been criticized, Peter, is like the legalists of today, aren't they? They take the fun out of fundamentalism. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't go here. Don't go there. Don't be friends with those people. You know, we have, we have you know, a Christian hairdresser, a Christian dog groomer, groomer. You know, I'm around Christians all day long. Ah, I mean, I don't mind hanging out with Christians, but oh, my word. Like, that's all I do wherever I go. I don't want nothing to do with anybody crazy it's legalism okay what's 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 right on cue too which i i think separatists believe i don't want to get too sidetracked here because i want to wrap up but separatists believe that sin is something that you catch when people sneeze so don't go near them when the bible says that sin is where in your heart okay i'm not saying join them in their sin i'm simply saying it's in your heart they're not sneezing on you okay It's not going to happen that way. And the legalistic wing of this Hebrew Christian in Jerusalem calls Peter under the carpet and they criticize him. And just like a legalist, these Jewish Christians were not rejoicing that the Gentiles had received grace and mercy and the Spirit of God. They're criticizing him because you ate with them? Like, never mind all that God is doing. I'm just going to say, how dare you go with them, man? You hung out with those people? Like, God opened their heart. Like, really? So Peter, verse 4 through 17, gives a defense, tells them all what's happened. And look at verse 18. You go down to the end. It shut them right up. I love it. And when they heard these things, they were silent. They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, the Holy Spirit told Luke to write this down and tell it twice. For a reason. Okay, for a reason. He wanted to say, look, salvation is for everyone, all people. They don't have to come through adopting Jewish rituals, but rather God is saving everyone from every race through the gospel, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And how does he save them? Don't, I want you to catch this a couple more minutes. Don't lose me here. How he saves them through Christ, through the gospel, but through the word of the gospel. Chapter 10, verse 36 For the word that was sent to Israel, preaching, declaring good news, peace through Jesus Christ. Chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was saying these things, what was he saying? Preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit descended and fell on those who heard the word. 
Chapter 11, verse 15, Peter's telling it again. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. So what Peter's saying that the Holy Spirit is not some abstract thing or idea, but he's connected to the person, the third person of the Trinity, is connected to the preaching of the word. Belief in the gospel. Understanding that Jesus Christ has come. He lived a life, a perfect life. He died an atoning death, a cursed death, and he rose from the grave. And then the Holy Spirit descended. But what I want us to see as we wrap it up is that Luke is retelling the story. Not only does the Holy Spirit come when you believe the gospel, but it comes in greater measure when you believe the gospel more fully. Who is Peter telling this to? Christians, those who receive the Holy Spirit, those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, those who've been baptized into the body of Christ, they're Christians. They've been born anew. And Peter's telling them the gospel again. It comes in greater measure. Do you want more of the Holy Spirit? Believe deeper in the gospel. Tim Keller said it this way. We never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truth. Rather, it is more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABC of Christianity, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum requirement doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom of God, but the way we make all progress in the kingdom. He writes, we are not justified by the gospel and then sanctified by obedience, but the gospel is the way we grow, Galatians 3, and are renewed. It is the solution to each problem, the key to every closed door, the power through which we get through every barrier, end quote. Now listen, okay, give me two more minutes, listen. Peter is criticized by Christians, those who have the Holy Spirit, and when they received the gospel, they were saved. But Peter is rehearsing the story because he's preaching the gospel to them again. Not for salvation, but for further sanctification so that they would live more like Jesus and be more like the God in which they worship. When the gospel gets deeper and deeper in our hearts, it removes that racism, that hatred, that self-justification. When the grace of God comes into your life, that redeems you. All that stuff gets pressed into our lives and you see these people who already are Christian, who already know the gospel, are rehearsing the gospel, getting rid of their racism, getting rid of their prejudices, getting rid of their self-justification. So the main problem that these legalists had and we have in our own self-righteous issues, our own prejudices, is because we have not thought deeply on the implications of the gospel. We have not used, we have not applied the gospel into every area every part of our life. Richard Lovelace says the most people problems are just failure to, reorient, to be oriented to the gospel. Most people's problems are just a failure to be oriented to the gospel. A failure to grasp and believe it through and through. Martin Luther said this, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is that we know this article well, teach it to others and beat it into our heads continually. The gospel is being preached to to Gentiles. They become Christians. The gospel is being preached to Christians so they can break the hatred, the racism, the superiority, and the other sins in our life. How do we press the gospel in? 
we see the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that in Luke chapter 12, verse 50? I'm going to invite the band up as we go through this. i got one more minute. Band, come on up. Now listen to me. In Luke chapter 12, verse 50, this is what it says. Jesus says, I came to cast a fire on the earth. He's talking about judgment. And would that it would already be kindled. But, verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Oh, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. When God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, fire came down to earth. In 2 Kings, when soldiers came for Elijah, fire came down and consumed them. You know, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, there was no fire. There was no fire because it was on the cross that the fire of judgment of God came down on Jesus so you don't have to. Jesus took the punishment for our sins. Jesus was baptized. Jesus was immersed with God's absence on the cross. Why hast thou forsaken me as our sin was poured on him? He endured the baptism of judgment and the absence so that we could be baptized with his presence, with his love, with his beauty, with his acceptance. Jesus done that for you. And when you look at that and when you see that and when you press that in your heart, when you know that the fiery judgment, the baptism, Jesus' baptism, the wrath poured out on him that brought you in, forgives you, and you experience his unfailing, unconditional love, the more you see that, the more you see what God calls clean, you do not call unclean. The baptism of the Spirit and the fullness of the Spirit will come when we apply, press in, press down, use the gospel in every area, every part of our lives. What God has called clean, do not call unclean. Let us pray. Father, we know that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, on a rescue mission to save us from our uncleanness. Your word tells us that we are all sinners, that all of us have turned away and all of us have rebelled against our creator, stuck our fist in your face. And you sent your son as atoning sacrifice to pay the debt that our sin has endured, has incurred. So Father, we want to press the truth of the gospel deeper into our lives so that we see everyone, all peoples, nations, tongues, tribes, and nations. As, we, as, as an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ. It is not a debate. It is a declaration. It is not advice. It is good news. Father, help us to be a willing people, to hear the voice of Jesus, to listen to the Spirit, to walk as he walked, to love as he loved, and to sh- open our mouth, as Peter did, to share all that Jesus has done for us in our place, and that many would put their faith and trust in him. And now as we respond, it's really about the cross. Father, we pray that our response would bring you much glory and there would be a turning of hearts to you today. In Jesus' good name, amen. Let us respond.